Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. All right, let's play a little game. This will be great. Okay, close your eyes. Not you, you're driving. Now think of something you know to be true. Got it? You're wrong. Oh man, that was fun. You want to try it again? Isn't this what the world feels like today? Or, Or is it just me? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about being wrong. Or is that wrong? Uh, well, while I ponder my very existence, why don't you learn about some Kentucky Fried Racism and then move on into a story about how liberals are not happy about a reduction in murder, and finally we'll get a little medical and talk about how being black is a disease, uh, apparently. So get your favorite, non-culturally appropriated food, a roll of duct tape for your head, and your copy of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) No, not that horrible nighttime TV drama, the actual medical manual. And you may want to plant your feet firmly on the ground so you don't flip completely around too violently. And, uh, go we here! You may not be aware of this, but February is Black History Month. (laughs) Just kidding, of course you're aware. Everyone is aware. Everywhere you turn, you're being told that February, the shortest month of the year, is Black History Month. Okay, look, there's a reason why it's February, but it's one of those talking points that people like to use to poke at the old lefties. Anyway, it was officially recognized by Gerald Ford, a staunch Democrat. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. Uh, He was a Republican in 1976, only 50 years after the first Negro History Week. Of course, this means it was a missed opportunity by the likes of FDR, Harry Truman, JFK, and Lyndon Johnson, as well as a number of Republicans. But remember, the Democrats have always been the anti-racist ones, right? Right? That's what we're told. Just kind of wondering why it wasn't recognized by any of those guys. Anyway... It was placed in February originally by Carter G. Woodson and Jesse E. Moreland, who were black. They were founders of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, in order to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. They put it in February. Those two were great friends of differing colors. Of course, the left is now desperately trying to paint Lincoln as a stone-cold racist, ignoring the growth and the ever-changing, enlightening viewpoint of his as his knowledge and understanding grew. But of course, the left, meanwhile, completely ignores that at that same time, the early push toward evolution was occurring in which the theory, and eventually Darwin himself, classified the Negro as a different and inferior race thus bastardizing science. But remember, we are not ever supposed to challenge science. So through February, 
Many different events, TV shows, celebrations, etc., are held commemorating the contributions of blacks in America. I know that many disagree with this because we, quote, don't have a white history month. I mean, okay, look, that is somewhat a valid argument. I mean, there's a Hispanic Heritage Month, an Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, a Native American Heritage Month, an Arab American Heritage Month, a Women's Heritage Month, and two months celebrating LGBTQ+. I mean, we can't have a European-American Heritage Month. But, I mean, look, it's fine. I I don't really have a problem with a Black History Month or most of the other Heritage Months. I'll reserve specific comment at this time. I see nothing wrong with using a month to celebrate all of the accomplishments of Black individuals in America, as they are many and great. I don't see Blacks as a different race, however, because they're literally not. They're part of the human race. But they are a different ethnicity. They are a different culture. They had a very different path to where they are today in America, different than any of the other groups. So I personally see no issue with this month. But in a world of snowflakes, you know, the current world we seem to find ourselves in, that are offended at and by everything, in a world where everything has to do with color of skin, a a world where if you try to celebrate and bond with someone of a different melanin content, you're culturally appropriating. But if you don't celebrate, you're a racist. The question is, how do we celebrate this? How can we show that we see blacks as just being human? Well, as it turns out, even blacks trying to celebrate Black History Month can be called on the carpet as racists if they do it wrong. From the Blaze, headline, Massachusetts Catholic School apologizes for serving fried chicken to students to observe Black History Month. At first blush, I'm willing to bet that most of you just had a knee-jerk reaction of, you've got to be kidding, why would they do that? I'd also be willing to bet that from this headline, you have perfectly determined what happened. Some stupid whitey Catholic priest in control of the school said, you know what, I think them Negroes like fried chicken. And then after he forced them to eat a symbol of shame, he then forced a group of them to perform a concert of the old Negro spirituals that they used to sing while they were in the fields. Except no, that's that's not even close. It turns out a female African-American, can I say that word anymore? American? Uh, or female? or or African, an African-American female cafeteria worker wanted to, quote, share a piece of her culture by creating menu items that represent historically Southern black cuisine. So she was granted permission. She actually did it like a massive racist. She, a black woman working in food service, made food that Southern blacks culturally and historically like to eat at a school in New England to show the students of the school in the Northeast, who have likely very little knowledge of the South, a piece of her Southern black culture through food. So obviously this Southern black food service worker woman is, as I said, a massive racist and probably a raging white supremacist. Of course, you have some of the students that were offended because basically we're raising a generation of pusillanimuses, uh, pusillanimi, not really sure, who are literally offended by pretty much all things because that's the, uh, the cool thing to do. I'm not sure, really. Others were not offended, but they're stupid and probably white supremacists also, so they don't matter. So the school had to immediately jump out there and issue a public apology. 
Oh, look, I get it. They don't want BLM. Well, I mean, <laughs> if anyone can find any of the leaders in the tens of millions they made off with, they don't want them coming and staging a, quote, mostly peaceful protest in and around and through and likely on top of their school. They don't want Al Sharpton coming over there shouting, I don't know, something nonsensical, saying words that are clearly pronounced wrongly, whatever those words might be. But what most everyone still can't seem to grasp, to my never-ending amazement, is that no apology will ever be good enough. No capitulation will be capitulationized to a great enough degree. You're forever a racist, no matter what. This school is marked for life. At this point, I want to try a small thought exercise with you. little experiment. Sound good? Okay, stop being that way. It'll be fun. Come on. I'll give you a culture. You say the first food that comes to mind. Chinese. I bet most of you said rice. And is it too early to say bat? No, let's not cross that line. Okay, next. Uh, Mexican. All right, how many had tacos, right? Italian. Uh Uh-huh. Pasta, anyone? And don't even try to pretend like you didn't put your fingertips together and point them in the air to make the Italian motion as you said a pasta, huh? How about uh, Irish? Potatoes, right? Japanese. Okay, look, I don't eat Japanese. I don't know. Sushi, maybe? I don't know. It's something I'm not trying. How about uh, Indian? Probably curry? Something with some spice in it. Also something I'm not trying. Nordic. Right? Swedish and Norwegian. Oh, I know what you guys thought of. Say it with everybody. Say it with me. Go ahead. Here we go. Lutefisk. <laughs> You'll never believe this. Uh, Lutefisk. Something else I'm not trying. And how about American? Maybe steak or burgers, ribs, something made of meat. Now, whether you had the same answers as me or not, I guarantee that should your initial response become known to the woke world you would be slammed as a massive racist. So now let's carefully, nah, let's boldly jump in and try it for blacks, specifically Southern blacks. Now be brave, everybody. Yes, what comes to everyone's mind? It's food like fried chicken, collard greens, watermelon, and purple drink. Okay, I don't know about the purple drink. I just like to say purple drink. And what's wrong with this? Why is it bad to say that blacks historically and culturally enjoy fried chicken? I used to live in the South, Alabama. I've eaten at some black-owned, black-run, traditional Southern home cooking diners. And trust me, fried chicken was on the menu there. And I ate it. And it was amazing. Now, can we not recognize that every culture has specific everything? And it can be celebrated, and it can be honored, and it can be laughed at, and it can be iconic, and it can be a stereotype, and all of those things are fine. Quite literally, if you see this, or any of the other food choices, or any of these standard cultural things that we all know about as racist, the problem is with you. You're the one so focused on color, you've forgotten or don't care that we're all human. I, for one, am so thankful for the foods of different cultures. Well, not the sushi or the lutefisk, but you get my point. And the the blessing of living in this country where I get to try these and enjoy these foods. I mean, how amazing is that? It wasn't that long ago that there was no way we could have tried these foods unless we went to that specific country. 
And can we just speak on the United States as a melting pot? You will not find the kind of integrated diversity that you find here. Sure, you may have a fraction of a percent of the population that are legitimately racist, but look around you, open your eyes. We are not a racist country, and we are not a racist people. Now, the school apologized by saying, quote, we are deeply troubled and disheartened by our failure in this instance and take full responsibility for it. Really? You're deeply troubled? By what, exactly? By the reality that blacks culturally like fried chicken? By the fact that you took the suggestion of your black food service employee? That you fed the kids? That you were trying to celebrate Black History Month? I mean, can someone enlighten me as to how they aired? They said that they were trying to teach the students about how some black women freed after the Civil War sold fried chicken to make a living. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's true. I kind of have a feeling that this might have been a crafted excuse made up by a PR team. They said, quote, regrettably, our message was poorly communicated, resulting in some perceiving it as the propagation of a negative stereotype. Negative stereotype? How is liking chicken a negative stereotype? One senior at the school seemed to have his head on straight. Of course, he's a whitey white white bread, so he clearly can't have an opinion on this. Regardless, he said, it's overhyped. We eat chicken every single day for school. We're learning more about black history. It's something that every single school should do. <laughs> I like this kid. So those that know me know I'm a bit eh, more blunt in many situations. We should be honest about who we are, not pretend like we either don't see the differences or we do see massive differences that should cause us to hate or mistrust or cancel each other. I mean, as I'm recording this, I'm watching some Olympic coverage. It's interesting to hear the different languages see the interaction between people that have no idea what the other one is saying, and yet they don't seem to see differences. They seem to see a competitor, a fellow athlete, a fellow human. And this is literally how most of this country and a good majority of the world works. We really don't care. Now, as a Christian, how do we handle situations like this? Well, first, we're not to try to offend others. I know, I know, pot calling the kettle black here. I, I know I need to look at myself. We're called to love our neighbor. Neighbor, literally meaning everyone. Jesus told us in Mark 12, when asked which commandment is the most important, that, quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So first, we are to be loving to others, even those of differing opinions. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them or be like them, but we need to be loving. They are fellow image bearers of God. Second, as Christians, we are to strive to not cause other Christians to stumble in the faith. Paul uses the example of clean and unclean food with regard to Jewish law, with the overall lesson being to not cause other Christians to question their faith or violate their conscience, which is a sin in itself based on the things you do. He says in 1419, speaking to fellow Christians, Quote, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This can apply to forcing others to choose sides. Most of the woke culture these days is there to force us to choose sides, choose our group, and then hate and destroy the other groups. And yes, this can and is and does reach into the church itself. 
Now, speaking of sin in the woke culture, let me just slide this obvious point in here. If what we're being told to think is in itself sinful, that's something that Christians should run from. If we're told to hate someone because of their skin color or that we are to just accept the life choices of others, regardless of if it goes against God's word, that is sinful. We do not have to be unloving, but we do have ground to stand firmly against this kind of wokeism. Third, we must have all the information. Proverbs 18.17 tells us, quote, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. We must have both sides of the story before making a decision. In terms of a dispute with a definitive answer, all the information needs to be known before a conclusion can be reached. In terms of opinion, which is essentially where most of these kinds of woke disagreements lie, even when knowing both sides of the argument, you may never agree with those that are telling you that you're wrong. There is no point in arguing further. Do your best to agree to disagree and move on. And trust me, this is a life lesson learned difficultly. Finally, understand that because you're not going to have the same opinion as others on every issue, that you can't allow yourself to have such thin skin as to be offended and angry by opinions differing from yours. Ecclesiastes 7, 21-22 says, quote, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So you're not perfect, neither is anyone else. And you can't be someone that walks around with a constant chip on your shoulder. Let it go. Move on with your life. And these are the problems. The world, those who are following the woke agenda, tell us that being a Christian is nonsense, is hateful, is discriminatory, is unloving, and yet the Christian is the only one who has the tools to navigate difficult times like these where people are being offended constantly over everything. If we all loved our neighbor, if we all strove to allow people to follow their conscience in matters not specifically spelled out in the Bible, if we work to understand each other, and if we decided that in, again, matters not specifically detailed in the Bible, it's okay to have different opinions, and we can still be friends, can you imagine the way the world would feel? Now, would you believe me if I said for nearly all of you, you already know this feeling? You go to work, you go to the store, you watch movies, you have friends, you go to church, you read books and magazines, and you come across all sorts of cultures, Colors, languages, accents, and on and on and on. And are you hateful toward them? Are they hateful toward you? Do you seriously believe that you and they agree on everything? But you live like a human among humans, not a race among races or an identity among identities. If we all realize that every human is from one race, and that every human is an image bearer of God, and that every human contains a soul that will have an eternal existence somewhere, how would we treat others? What kind of example would we show to others? So as for me, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm going to eat fried chicken, knowing that culturally, blacks are a huge fan of that fried chicken. And I'm going to eat rice and not worry that I'll offend a person of Chinese background by culturally appropriating their food staple. <laughs> but I will not eat lutefisk. Them Nords, ugh, they can have that stuff for themselves. Okay, don't get offended. Don't worry. I'm about 50% Nordic. I can make that joke. Look, go love others. Be an example of Christ to others. Don't let the woke world fracture humanity into divisive, warring factions. You know the truth. Live it. Show it. Live fearlessly. 
As a child of God, who do you have to fear? Let me start by saying that this is a legitimate article. It's not satire. It's not sarcasm. It's a real, sincere article written by the Associated Press, posted on USA Today. Headline, Abortions in Texas Fall by 60% Under the Most Restrictive Regulations in the U.S. Now, one might expect a happy article, a celebration of the reduction in abortions. In fact, as the left has demanded for decades, they just want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. Well, it is legal. I mean, if you discount the tiny human baby that's being murdered, uh, it's marginally safe-ish, but it's far from rare with around 2,500 abortions per day in the U.S. So you'd think the lefties that want it to be rare would celebrate that the new Texas law has increased the rarity. But alas, no. Despite what you may think, this article is actually written as a negative, as a bad thing. So the article starts with an AP video that I don't care enough to spend four minutes of my life on, but it's captioned, women of color in states with already restrictive abortion laws often have limited access to health care. If abortions are outlawed, the same women will likely have the hardest time terminating pregnancies or raising the children they would bear. So we haven't even hit the short article yet, And we've already got this thing being a racist thing. This disputed claim that women of color apparently can't find their way to doctors. And as we know, there is no help for a woman in poverty to obtain health care. I mean, how many poor dead women did you have to step over today on your way to work or the store? They've also confused abortion service with health care. Probably just an honest mistake, right? They've dramatized these laws as there isn't a law on the books that actually outlaws abortion. And even if Roe versus Wade was thrown out, only a few states would actually ban or outlaw abortion. Others would make it more restrictive and others would keep it the same or make it more broad. And then they've used one of my favorite techniques, assuming the same women will likely have the hardest time. (laughs) Likely have the hardest time, you say. The hardest time to what, you may ask? Why, quote, terminating pregnancies. Now, I call that murdering babies. I digress. And if they can't find a way to dispose of that human, they will likely have a hard time raising the children. (laughs) If only there was another option that could help women from getting pregnant. I just can't think of anything. Oh, well. Okay, quickly, the article. After Texas passed a bill that said abortions would not be allowed after a heartbeat is detected, which is about six weeks, except in the case of rape or incest, the first month showed a drop of abortions in Texas of 60%. There were only 2,200 babies murdered versus 5,400 the full month prior to the law. Now, the author goes on to lament the unfortunate sharp drop in patients in Texas murder mills, (laughs) my words, not his, and that the stupid, hateful courts have repeatedly left this terrible law in place. And now, oh man, and please try to hold it together when you hear of this, 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 should we just call it terrorism? Some patients, you're never going to believe this, would have to drive, oh, the horror, hundreds of miles to other states, and then, if that's not bad enough, 
wait longer for an appointment, you know, to kill their babies. I mean, why are we treating these women like animals? They just want to slaughter their young, and we're forcing them to be slightly more inconvenienced in order to do it. God must be weeping. Now, Planned Parenthood, of course, chimed in calling this information, quote, the very beginning of the devastating impact. <laughs> well, nobody told me that not murdering would be devastating if I had only known. The author then talks about the, may I say, beautifully creative way that this law was crafted. I'm being serious. And that so far, no, quote, anti-abortion supporters have filed a lawsuit in accordance to the law. And he wraps it up by mentioning that if Roe versus Wade was overturned, other states of hate will likely restrict access to abortions. Now, you may have detected a slight hint of sarcasm in my tone. I... <laughs> My apologies, that's mainly because I have very little time for murderers. And as hard as it might be to believe, this actually includes murderers of babies, regardless of where they exist. Now, some things to point out. A difference of 5,400 to 2,200 doesn't mean that 3,200 lives were saved. It means that 3,200 babies weren't killed in Texas. There was definitely a percentage of these that died in other states. Now, what percentage? I have no idea. So... We can say that some were or are being saved, and saved to what? <laughs> also, I have no idea. Maybe a wonderful life, maybe adoption, maybe a terrible childhood. That literally isn't part of the equation. The bottom line is that murder is murder. Now, I also like how we're on the anti-abortion side, but they're on the pro-choice side. The terms have to change because the baby killers can't say what they really do. This is why you'll never see pro-life versus anti-life, pro-abortion versus anti-abortion, pro-murder versus anti-murder. You might see pro-choice versus anti-choice because that paints them in a positive light. Now, I really don't have much to comment on here. We've all heard the massive numbers of babies killed since Roe versus Wade in the United States, nearly 63.5 million to date. For perspective, that's approaching the current populations of California and Texas combined. As Christians, murder is murder. You know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that a baby is a human life at the moment of conception. At conception, the sperm and the egg combine to make a new, unique DNA, meaning it's a new, unique human life. It's literally that simple. If you argue against that, you literally argue against biological science. And as we know, the science is settled, unless we need to unsettle it and twist it for our own agenda. Now, I've included some links for some answers in Genesis Sanctity of Life articles and Wretched.org store, which sells the Life is Best DVD or download, and Stand to Reason's SLED, an acronym, argument against abortion. SLED, S-L-E-D, standing for Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Degree of Dependency. This site goes into how those common arguments are nonsensical when you actually break them down. A great way to counter the pro-abortion arguments. Let me wrap up with this, and this will likely and sadly be controversial. If you're a professing Christian who is also pro-choice, I'm here to tell you, you're not a Christian. You aren't saved. Okay, look, can I say that with 100% accuracy? I'm not God, so I don't have the ability to determine your state of salvation. 
but you should be very nervous, very worried. And if I were you, I wouldn't take any unusual risks until you figure this out. Personally, I can't see how you can be an advocate for the murder of the unborn image bearers of God and a saved individual at the same time. Call me silly. We are called to honor God's image bearers. We are called to be fruitful and multiply. We are called to protect those weaker than ourselves. We know what life is. We know what's growing in there. And we will not be held blameless, especially if we advocate for or even vote for those that are pro-abortion. And no, the argument that I believe a woman has the right over her own body doesn't work. I believe that also. Unfortunately, as biological science tells us, at that moment of conception, the little human that started growing is not the woman's body. That's like me murdering someone in my car and me using the, it was inside my car, defense. Furthermore, if you're a Christian and you lie to yourself, taking a passive stance on abortion, voting for those that are pro-murder because you feel that it's not your job to police the sin of others or judge other people. Yeah, again, I'm going to say you may want to look at the state of your soul real close. So let's be in prayer that the Texas law will stand and that stronger laws will follow in Texas and elsewhere. Let's be in prayer for the removal of Roe versus Wade. It's about time. Let's be in prayer for the radical salvation, the repentance of those performing this murder. And let's be in prayer for those women that feel that they have no other option. And finally, if you're a Christian and you're able, we are the most generous, most charitable demographic in the world. Put your money where your beliefs are. I've included a link to one charity that I give a small monthly donation to, Preborn Ministries. Donate to this, find a charity of your choice, or find a way to help save babies and help expectant mothers and the fathers make a choice for life and maybe even a decision to follow Christ. Just do something. Don't just talk. That's one of the biggest complaints they have about Christians is we say, don't kill your baby, don't kill your baby, and then we don't help anybody to not kill their baby. Don't just talk. Do something. So you guys know the Olympics, right? I mean, you've heard of that. You know, like, for example, the 2022 Winter Olympics that just finished. Did you watch any? I watched pretty much all of the curling. <laughs> Why? Because I like curling. It's a really skilled, very strategic game. You should all watch curling too. Look, not the point of the commentary, all right? Let's move on here. This is not going to be an article review. This is actually going to be a commercial review. I watched curling on the Peacock Network. That's the cheaper version of the Peacock Network that forces you to endure the commercials, like some kind of animal. And a friend of mine also confirmed that this commercial was shown on the network coverage as well. Did you happen to catch the Visa starting line commercial? In 30 seconds, Visa presented one of the most racist commercials I've ever seen. In fact, I had a link to this commercial on YouTube, and when I went back to find it for this review, the video is now set to private, so I had to go find it again. Luckily, I found it on Vimeo. Anyway, Let's play the audio really quick, and, and then I'm going to break this down a little. 
everyone celebrates the finish line. But what about the starting line? I went through 12 treatments of chemotherapy. I am African-American and I'm surrounded by people who aren't. I didn't become a snowboarder until after I became an amputee. We all win when everyone can get to their starting line. So the premise is that if you're going to win, if you're going to even finish, you must get to the starting line. I believe that this is, really means that no matter what's holding us back, we already have to fight just to start. And of course, going in debt with a Visa credit card will definitely help you, you know, get started the right way, right? Again, not the point. The first guy shown is a Canadian snowboarder, Max Parrott, at the top of the run, ready to start. He's a white male, pronouns are heat. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't go that far yet. Uh, but he is a white male who apparently went through 12 rounds of chemotherapy. I'm going to skip to the third guy. That's another white male, a snowboarder for the USA by the name of Mike Schultz. He has a prosthetic leg from the knee down on the left. And after he lost his leg, that's when he took up snowboarding. He's now a Paralympian for Team USA. The commercial shows him in the locker room getting ready for his run, right, moving towards the starting line. Back to the second person. A black female speed skater coming set at the starting line on the ice, a USA Olympian. I'm probably going to butcher the name, but I'm thinking Miami Biney. She had to overcome being the only black person. And that's it. Now, if you look her up, You'll actually find out that she's the first black woman to make the U.S. Olympic short track speed skating team. Okay, well, I mean, you know, congratulations for that. And really, to make any Olympic team is a massive accomplishment. So, you know, that's fantastic. And, of course, we in this day and age have to mark the first accomplishments by humans with skin colors other than what is considered to be white. Okay. But beyond that, how does this fit with the other two? You have one person who had to beat cancer, a disease. You had another person who had to learn to walk again after losing part of his leg, who is now a snowboarder. And you have a person who is black and apparently pretty fast on the ice. What challenge did she face? Have black women been denied the right to try to be on the U.S. Olympic short track speed skating team up until now? I don't think so. She's 22, so born in the year 2000, so she didn't fight alongside Dr. King or Rosa Parks for civil rights, and actually she made the 2018 Olympic team. She didn't do very well, but still, she was literally on the Olympic team four years ago as well. Now, she was born in Ghana, Africa, and she is the second African-born Olympian to represent the U.S. in the Winter Games, so I mean, that, you know, that's something. And so... She's black, born in Africa, apparently moved here, I don't know, at some point, was blessed with speed and the ability to stay up on ice skates and was blessed with the ability to train and to practice and do all the things it takes in order to become an Olympian. Is it just me or does anyone else need help understanding how this compares with cancer or the loss of a limb? And keep in mind, the background that I just gave you for Ms. Biney is infinitely more than what the commercial does, which makes their commercial even worse. All she says is, 
I am African American and I'm surrounded by people who aren't. So the way that Visa is pushing their commercial is today in our current time in the United States competing to be the fastest or best at something while being black is as difficult as overcoming cancer or losing a leg. <laughs> oh, man. To borrow a line from an old Saturday Night Live sketch. Who are the odd wizards who came up with this one? That is right. Here's the problem. This is unbelievably racist. At least in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, okay? But but this seems to be really racist. Now, maybe she had to flee her home country. Maybe she's an orphan. Maybe she grew up in poverty. Maybe she was addicted to drugs or alcohol. Maybe she was a runaway. Maybe she had an unparalleled life of ease. <laughs> the issue is that we don't know. We're literally told that this guy survived cancer. This guy lost a leg. This girl was black. Visa is literally saying that being black is the same as having a disease or being disabled. I am really offended by this commercial, and I don't get offended easy. The black community should be offended. The Olympians should be offended. The Paralympians should be offended. Anyone that's had cancer or known anyone that has had cancer should be offended. Everyone with a disability should be offended. Everyone should take offense at this commercial. Everyone. This is nothing but pandering. This is woke-tivism that's gone way too far in, a, in an attempt to be inclusive. Visa blew it. Now look, these are 30-second spots, and from what I could find, these spots probably cost about a quarter of a million dollars to run. I know that they're trying to make their point and sell their product in 30 seconds. That's not easy. But Maybe they could have split each of these individuals out into their own individual commercials. They could have actually given a little backstory about them, and maybe this wouldn't have turned out as offensive or at least cringeworthy as it is. But this is what happens when you chase the wind. King Solomon, considered the wisest man to ever live, spoke of his experience in life striving for wisdom. In the oft-discussed but variously interpreted book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, Solomon says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation." And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what can we take from this? Well, you know, it could be that the more we understand about the world, the more we see the brokenness of the world and the effect of sin on the world. I could also see this as saying the more wise we consider ourselves, the more we screw things up because we rely more on ourselves and much less on God, causing a more and more perverted view of reality. We consider ourselves so wise now that we've gone so far with classifying those with a different skin color as special that we've now moved all the way back around to segregation, fueled by the knowledge that those of darker skin are different races than those of lighter skin. Our wisdom is perverted. Proverbs, of course, says much about wisdom, with the key really being that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
But in James we see that, quote, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And also, quote, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Does the Visa commercial, which is really just a microcosm for the world we live in today, show impartiality? Does it exude sincerity? We have pushed God out of our lives, told him that not only do we not want him around, we are now so wise that we don't need him around anymore. But the perversion of our wisdom is what leads to the belief in evolution. It leads to the belief that there are races of humans. It leads to segregation. It leads to hatred. It leads to slavery. And it's leading there again today. Many people today, especially those of us that are just starting to see adversity and persecution in the first world, believe that we are mere moments from the return of Christ. Maybe they're right. I don't know. Although I I personally don't think that we're even close, at least from human perspective. But I also don't believe that we're going to turn around as a nation, as a world, and start running back toward God, begging for his forgiveness and his wisdom. I believe that we will continue down a road of demanding God stay out of our business so that we can continue to consider ourselves to be wise. So as Christians, what do we do? Well, we get our noses in the Bible. We ask for God's wisdom. We help people see where the wisdom of the world falls short, where the wisdom of the world is in fact unwise and dangerous. And we need to be always on guard. We cannot allow ourselves to go over the cliff with the rest of humanity. We must be able to talk sense, communicate wisdom, and be that shining beacon to help others find the true truth and not follow the vain, faulty wisdom of the world. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.